continue in our study of community of believers. If somebody get First Timothy three fourteen and fifteen for us, uh, Sam. And then I need uh, Matthew twenty two thirty seven to forty. Uh, Noel. Uh, John 13, 34 and 35. Uh, Dave, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Mike, and 1 John 4, 11. 1 John 4, 11, Don. Okay, we're gonna, we, we went through uh, uh, discipline over the last couple of weeks. Church discipline, the entire uh, essence of this study is to analyze the structure, if you will, or the way God has designed that His church would function. Uh, the church is a microcosm. It is a, uh, com- it's a counterculture or a subculture, a culture within a culture. Any society, any community, any culture has a structure to it. It has a, uh, uh, an order to it which identifies it and defines it. And so that's what we've been looking at. We looked at uh, the issue of uh, its relationship to us as believers and our commitment to church. Uh, We've looked at the issue of uh, commitment, authority, discipline, these various things that all tie into the government or structure of the church, if you will. And so we're going to continue on and look at relationships. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 is the uh, basic text that we've been Uh, using as our uh, foundation for the study, if we could have that. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. How you ought to conduct yourself, how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church. And so uh, Paul's saying there's a way that we should live. In relationship to the church, there is a, a dynamic that the church imposes on our life. We are the church, uh, and uh, we, have, we are planted in the church by God. God has placed us in the church, and now there's a way that we ought to live in that context or in that relationship. And so uh, we have to consider, as we've looked at the other issues, we have to now consider our responsibility to each other, at the very core of the church, very clearly, is the issue of relationship. And so uh, we, we need to look at what the Bible has to say about how we relate to each other. Let's uh, use Matthew 22, 37 to 40 to uh, set a tone for the study that we're about to look at. Okay, Jesus makes this incredible summary of the kingdom of God, and he says there's really only two laws. The first is you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart. This comes in salvation. This is uh, the surrender of our life to God. And he says the second is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says on these two things hang the entire law and the prophets. Everything that you know about the kingdom of God hangs on these two concepts, loving God and loving the brethren, loving your neighbor. And so he's putting an awful lot of clout in the issue of human relationship. 
He's, he's putting a great impetus here, a great weight, a great gravity on the issue of relationship. And uh, it's clearly a kingdom priority. And yet, just like in a blood family, many, many times the dynamics of relationship are just simply taken for granted. And we don't even consider how we treat each other. We just live and uh, uh, we become self-absorbed and uh, many other dynamics uh, work in. And so many times relationships are violated unintentionally and sometimes they're violated intentionally. And God says this is, this is the, the most important thing in the kingdom is your love for God and your love for each other. This is, so this isn't something you can afford to take for granted. The entire... Uh, essence of this study has said that the church is something that you can't afford to take for granted. And so uh, this comes down to a fine point in the realm of relationships. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another and by this people will know that you're genuinely my disciples. This will be the telling mark of the validity of your Christianity and the validity of your involvement in the church is your love one for another. Again, we see an enormous gravity attached to this issue. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Paul goes so far as to say this is something that is so central to Christianity that I don't even have to write to you about it. This is something God will deal with you about and will teach to you and impart to you from the very inception of your faith. From the very beginning of your Christian walk, God is going to deal with you about relationships and about brotherly love and about the way that you deal one with another. It's an intrinsic revelation. It's something that God places in the heart of believers. I was talking with a young man just yesterday who had backslidden and was coming back getting his heart right. And he said, you know, out in the world, I was, he said, he said, I was so lonely and there was, there was nothing like this family out there. There was nothing like this church, this fellowship, this group of believers out there. And so that's exactly as it should be. That's exactly uh, how the church should be defined, as a completely unique uh, context of relationships, a completely unique uh, uh, set of relationships, profound in its love and in its concern one for another. 1 John 4, 11 uh, gives us an additional thought on these lines. Even as God loved us, we ought also to love one another. So we have the example of Christ. We have the example of the way that God deals with us and brings us into these relationships. So central to the whole thought is this concept of love. And love, obviously, is, you know, Don Henley said it's a word that's been kicked around, used too much, and beaten down. And it's definitely a word that's been romanticized, it's been emotionalized, And that isn't what love is at all. Somebody tell me real quick, what what is love? Love is birds tweeting and little cartoon hearts floating around your head. What's love, Pete? Putting your arms around 
putting up with things that you didn't know were there. Okay. <laughs> Committing yourself to someone and then putting up with things you didn't know were there. <laughs> that's uh, that's true. It, it, absolutely true. Sure. Putting someone else's needs above your needs. And if I could take that a little further, uh, let's go beyond needs. Just simply putting someone else above yourself. What did Jesus say? He said, greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. That he puts someone else above himself. Okay, so love is, has nothing to do with a feeling. In fact, many, many times love feels awful. Love feels like putting up with things that you didn't know were there. Right? Love feels like putting up with things you did know were there. Love feels very, very difficult and trying many times. Love is not a sentiment. It's a sacrifice. It's looking at someone else's interests and welfare and placing it above your own. Someone else's interests and welfare and putting it above your own. Now that sounds good. That's a great theory. But putting it in practice is the challenge of a lifetime. And putting it in practice in the context of the body of Christ uh, is extremely difficult. Let's all turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody turn there. I'm going to use this for a period of time. We're going to discuss this chapter and several verses in it. And just what I want you to do is I want to lead you in an exercise of self-examination. I want you to take your relationships or perhaps the complete absence thereof because that's indicative in itself. And I want you to examine them by the yardstick of 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7. Because Jesus has said relationships in the body of Christ are about love of the brethren and Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians and he defines uh, in, in the finest and closest terms what love is. What love is. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with Hollywood. It's got nothing to do with romantic, gushy feelings one for another. It has nothing to do with just being at home and going, gee, I wish I were with the brethren. That has nothing to do with it. Okay? It's a lot more profound and a lot more confrontational in our own hearts than that. So I want to look at these verses with you. Uh, I want somebody to read verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to be interrupting you constantly. Okay, Adam? And uh, I want you all to think with me and hold your relationships up to this yardstick. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7. Okay, so the first thing Paul does is he does exactly what we've already done. He says love is the central issue. He compares it to all the other things that we deem spiritual. And he says these things are nothing if you don't have love. If you speak in tongues, you're a good Pentecostal. Uh, and you speak in tongues and you don't love the brethren, it, you're a phony. 
you're a clanging cymbal. You make a lot of noise, but you don't amount to anything. He says, if you uh, have faith to move mountains, I mean, how many of you, I remember when I first got saved, I got saved in Vermont, and I stepped outside and tried to move mountains. There are mountains all around, the Bible said I could do it, I figured, what the heck, let's give it a whirl. They didn't go anywhere. So I don't have that much faith, but I've got faith. I believe God, and yet your faith is worthless. Come to grips with that. Come to grips with that. Your faith is worthless if you don't love this group of people right here and everyone else that's associated with the church of Jesus Christ at large. Your faith is worthless. Jesus talks about going to the altar and presenting your sacrifices and your gifts to God. He says, if you remember there that you have ought against your brother, don't even bother with the sacrifice. Don't even bother going through the spiritual motions. Don't even pretend to be a man or a woman of God if you can't work through this issue of relationships. Because your faith, Paul says, is nothing. That's that's pretty intense. He says everything comes down to this issue of love. And he goes on and begins to define it for us. Love suffers long and is kind. Think about those two things. You're looking at your relationships. Suffering long. That means to be patient in abuse. Long-suffering is an attribute of God. He puts up with us, doesn't He? How many of you know that if you were God, everyone in this church would be a little pile of ashes? Thank God you're not God. God suffers long. I, I am saved 28 years, and the very fact that I still have a relationship with God to me is stunning. It's stunning. Because I'm such an idiot. And I do so many stupid and wrong things again and again. Paul in Romans 7 talks about the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And every one of you, if you had a shred of honesty, would say amen to those verses. And what does God do? In His perfect holiness, in His perfect righteousness, He suffers with us. He suffers long. I have just a slight insight into that being a parent. And and watching my children whack out. And suffering through the heartache of their bad decisions. I get just a little inkling of what it must be for God to put up with me. (laughs) Barclay, in his uh, commentaries, writes this, Love is patient. The Greek word is makrothumian, used in the New Testament, always describes patience with people. In other words, this specific word, love suffers long, or love is patient, the word makrothumian always deals with people. It's never dealing with circumstances or waiting for the check in the mail or anything like that. It's talking about being patient with people. Chrysostom said that it is the word used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself and who yet will not do it. It describes the man who is slow to anger and it is used of God himself in his relationship with men. 
In our dealings with men, however refractory, that means stubborn, obstinate, difficult, and however unkind and hurting they are, we must exercise the same patience of, as God exercises with us. Such patience is not the sign of weakness, but the sign of strength. It is not defeatism, but rather the only way to victory. Fosdick points out that no one treated Lincoln with more contempt than did Stanton. Stanton was uh, his commander-in-chief. He called him a low, cunning clown. That's what Stanton said of Lincoln. He nicknamed him the original gorilla and said that Duchalieu was a fool to wander about Africa trying to capture a gorilla when he could have found one so easily at Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln said nothing. He made Stanton his war minister because he was the best man for the job. And he treated him with every courtesy. The years wore on. The night came when the assassin's bullet murdered Lincoln in the theater. In the little room to which the president's body was taken stood that same Stanton. And looking down on Lincoln's silent face, he said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. The patience of love had conquered in the end. See, if anybody had the ability to take Stanton out, it would have been Lincoln. And yet he suffered with the indignities, he suffered with the abuse, he suffered with the attitudes, and he bore up under that with great patience. And so Paul says that's what love is. Love is putting up with each other. That's love. With all of our weirdness, everybody in this building is weird. I mean, you're just a weird group of people. You should all be just like me, but you're not. Probably a good thing. Because this planet would be really weird. And so, so I have to put up with you. And you have to put up with me. It's a very fair and equitable relationship. And that's what God's called us to. That means when somebody comes to drama practice and they got, you know, a funky attitude, you got to put up with it. You can't just explode and start a fight, start throwing things. Start yelling at each other. Start cussing at each other. I've, you know, I've, <laughs> I've talked to guys who've been in groups and, uh, you know, they've said they've gone, they've gone to blows at practice. Well, that, that's not what love is all about. See, love says, I can put up with you no matter what your problem is. He says love is kind. How often we as Christians put the emphasis on being right instead of being kind. That's where our emphasis is. We're pure in doctrine. See, that's exactly what the Pharisees were. They were pure in doctrine, but they had no value for people. And the Bible says that they put weights on people that they wouldn't bear themselves. See, we're, we're very strong as Christians on being right. Right doctrine, sound doctrine is very important. There's no argument with that. Nonetheless, sound doctrine doesn't win people. As important as sound doctrine is, that doesn't mean blow doctrine off. But that's not what wins people. What wins people is love. You can't win them by having accurate doctrine. You can go out and argue all day long about doctrine, but what will win them is kindness. You can't argue with kindness. I can argue with doctrine, but I can't argue with you being kind to me. And kindness, how many of you know, is something that's uh, not real prevalent in today's culture. 
So let me ask you, how does kindness color your relationships? How do you extend yourself? So let's use the yardstick. Are you long-suffering? Husband, wife, group leader, Bible study leader, whoever you may be. Kind. What acts of kindness? How do you treat people? How do you treat people? Some people, you know, it's like a dog digging in a garden. When my wife goes out and digs in the garden, she's very, very careful. She's, you know, you can tell. She loves her little plants. She's taking care of them. When my dog goes out and digs in the garden, he can care less what gets tore up. It all comes out. That's the way some of you are. Come into the church. Oh, look at all these dead bodies. Where did they come from? Walk through church and cut a swath with your tongue. Man, why are all these people just dead? How come none of my converts make it? Well, maybe it's because you're trying to make them Pastor Mitchell before you can get them to, you know, just quit smoking maybe. You know what I mean? It's like uh, a step at a time, the milk of human kindness here, you know? You don't slap your kid around because he's not walking yet. But so you slap your new converts around because they're not walking yet. Kindness. What a concept. Love does not envy. This is the description of love. Love is downright obnoxious when you consider it. It puts a terrible onus on me, a terrible burden on me. I have to put up with you. I have to be kind to you. I have, I have to be careful about my own heart towards envy. Wasn't it interesting down in Peru the other day when President Bush was down there and they were rioting in the streets because President Bush said we're going to, I think it was double or triple our current funding of Peru. We're going to, uh, we already given them billions, but we're going to give you more billions. And they rioted in the streets because it wasn't enough. That to me is stunning. It wasn't enough. The reason why they think that is they look at America and we're all the rich whiteies up north. And you owe us. You owe us. You shouldn't have all those comforts and we have to struggle. And so what we want you to do is we want you to be poor like us. So take your wealth and distribute it. Now this, beloved, is a frightening thing because this is the mindset of most of the world. Most of the world, Tom Paine preached a tremendous conference uh, sermon on it, maybe two, three conferences ago, about the attitude of the third world is not that there is an unlimited amount of uh, profit to be had out there, but rather there is just a limited amount and everybody gets a slice of the pie. And so if your slice is bigger than mine, we need to trim yours down and give you some, of, uh, give me some of yours. This is the way the world thinks. The world doesn't think... I'll go out and uh, with our resources and with our energy and with our uh, effort, we will rise to the same level as North America. No, what they say is North America needs to dole it out. And this is the mindset everywhere. Everywhere. And it's rooted in its bottom, most basic concept. It's rooted in greed and envy. That's what it's all about. It's envying those who have and really wishing that they had not. Now let's bring it into the church, into this group of people. 
And so how do you feel when you see a brother drive into the church lot in his brand new car? And you're still driving your 1982 banger. And you're wondering, why did that brother get blessed? Why, why didn't I get blessed? Why do I have to drive this lousy thing? Oh, none of you ever go through that. In fact, as soon as the new car pulls in, your heart leaps with joy that your brother's blessed. This is so good to see God just pouring out in you. May it double. May it triple. Next time, may you have a Mercedes. That's what you think, right? When that brother rises up in ministry and you've been contending for the slot, the first thing goes through your mind. It isn't, hey, what's he doing there? I should be there. That's not what you think. You think, oh, the right man for the job. Oh, God's hand is obviously on him. Right? No? See, the prevailing mindset in human nature is envy. We look at others and their blessing, and we say, you know what? That should be mine. This is why two of the commandments deal with covetousness. Two out of ten. That, that to me, is, is significant. 20% of God's law has to do with envy. You won't covet your neighbor's wife, and you won't covet his goods. Why did God say that? Because in our heart of hearts, that is the first reaction. When we see something that we would like, we want it. So love doesn't do that. Love overcomes that. Love, in fact, rejoices in the blessing of someone else. Okay, let's move on. Love does not parade itself. Love does not parade itself. Is not a braggart. Do you notice how bragging has come back? Gone are the days of the humble athlete who says, uh, it was the team. I'm just part of the team. Now they all say, yeah, you know, they couldn't do it without me. I am the team. Gone is the day of humility, period. It, this is the most narcissistic generation I've ever seen. It is unbelievable how people think of themselves and how large they paint themselves. Isn't it? it? You know, it's so funny. Guys and their macho thing, you know. And they walk around all bad. You know, they're bad. They got their baggies and their saggies and their headbands and they're all bad. And, and you look at them, you know, and it, they're only this big. <laughs> you know. And you're thinking, dude, you don't even want to go there. But, but it's this attitude, this, this strange Perception. Maybe it's too much TV. That's what it is. It's too much TV. And they spend their whole time watching guys kick everybody's butt. And then they think, oh, I can kick everybody's butt. You know, there was a guy on the uh, trip to Israel that we just went on that was like that. He was, he was uh, incredibly uh, hung up on himself and uh, just a violent dude. And uh, one day, two, three guys got a hold of him, put him in the hospital. He got saved shortly thereafter. It dawned on him he wasn't the baddest boy in Boston. And you know what? There ain't no baddest boy in Boston. There's always somebody badder. There's always somebody badder. Because the truth of the matter is, I can be badder than Arnold Schwarzenegger if I just sneak up behind him with a bat. Right? And so the bottom line 
is this this self-aggrandizing weird perception, uh, uh, this braggadocio that seems to have gripped our generation. It's just insane at its root. But we seem to embrace it. It seems to find its way into our lives. And, and the Bible says, you know, love doesn't brag. Love doesn't boast. Don't you hate it when you get around somebody and all they can talk about is themselves? And, and Pastor Mitchell preached on it a couple weeks ago. You say, uh, uh, you know, you say, well, I prayed for somebody and they, they you know, their, their, their sight got better. God healed them. They, they could see. And he's, ah, it's nothing. I prayed for a guy and his arm grew out. He didn't even have an arm. <laughs> you know, there's always this one-upmanship. I gotta, I gotta prove myself better than anybody else. That's not the kingdom of God. Okay? We're gonna open for thoughts. I saw a couple hands. We're gonna open for thoughts in a minute. Okay, let's move on. Okay, it's not puffed up. Uh, this is self-importance, self-inflation. Uh, this is the notion that, uh, uh, that you're more important than other people. And this is the exact opposite of what the New Testament calls us to again and again, and that is to put others uh, before ourselves. It's a shock for most of us to realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. And yet, that's the facts. The world doesn't revolve around us, but you've got to examine your relationships. Are your relationships all about you, or are your relationships all about the other person? It's amazing that... In its essence, we choose our relationships by our own personal benefit, don't we? I choose who I run with because of what they do for me. The way they make me feel. I don't run with people who don't make me feel the way I want to feel. That's the normal way of choosing our relationships. That's why God puts us in this body of all these divergent people. And He says, I really don't care how they make you feel. You have a responsibility to cultivate a relationship with them. And your needs are not the issue. Your needs are not the issue. Oh wait, I come to church to get my needs met. In fact, today, the church at large tailors its entire ministry about meeting felt needs. And the Bible says that's not what the church is about at all. It's about you coming and meeting needs. Okay, then he says, love is not rude. Isn't it amazing that the Bible would talk about manners? Love is not rude. That this is not justly the, the, just the uh, realm of uh, em, Emily Post. That actually the, the Bible says you, you shouldn't be rude. Again, rudeness like narcissism seems to have become fashionable. It seems to be fashionable to be rude. To flip people off and to uh, flick your boogers and... <laughs> pass gas in public, all of these things that shouldn't do seem to have become acceptable and actually quite good fun. That's the mindset today. The mindset today is, look, you take me as I am. And if the way I behave, you don't like that, that's tough. But what manners are all about, you know what manners are? Manners is about adjusting your behavior so you won't offend somebody. You say please and thank you. You know, you can get things without saying please. And you can get things without saying thank you. Why do we even bother? Isn't isn't this just some kind of Victorian throwback? Why do we even mess with it? Who cares?
cares what fork you eat your salad with, really. In the big scheme of things, who cares? Does God care what fork you eat your salad with? Does God care if you eat with your elbows on the table? Does God care? I don't think so. But you know what all those little things are? Those are little disciplines that rein in your behavior for the benefit of someone else. Little disciplines. Holding the door for a woman. Giving her your seat on the bus. Of course, in Prescott, there aren't a lot of buses running around. But, uh, give her your seat in the car. Just get out of the car and let her drive. <laughs> Manners are a social lubricant. They, they make relating to one another a little easier. There are some definitions that we know. These are things I shouldn't do. These are things I should do. This covers a complete range of the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we uh, relate to each other. All of this is governed by manners. And if you don't have a clue about manners, get Emily Post's book on etiquette. It's called Etiquette. That's all it's called. Miss manners, etiquette. If you have, you don't, because some of us, you know, we weren't raised with any of this, you know? We were trailer trash, <laughs> you know? We, we don't have a clue, you know? Hey, give me that hand bone there, you know? We don't, we don't even bother asking. We just reach across the table, get the hand bone, take a gnaw on it and pass it over. You want some? We don't have a clue. So, so get an older version. The later, the later versions of Emily Post's, actually her daughter picked up where she left off, and uh, she just doesn't have it. Get her earlier stuff. Get the stuff that Emily wrote, and she'll be able to help you through the social niceties. But it's very interesting to me. I was just amused that in the whole discussion of love, manners comes into play. Love isn't rude. Love isn't rude. Interesting. Okay, go on. Love doesn't seek its own. That pretty well says what it needs to say. Love doesn't seek its own. It doesn't seek its own rights. It doesn't seek its own way. It's not provoked. The Living Bible says it is not irritable or touchy. Love is not irritable or touchy. How's that fit, folks? A little tight? Love is not irritable or touchy. How often do we make excuses for our irritability? You never hear someone say, gee, I'm sorry I'm such a jerk. You say, listen, I'm stressed. You just have to put up with this because I'm stressed. This is the way I'm wired. I'm just wired this way. You know, it makes me want to reach in and unwire you. But this is the way we this is the way we behave. Well, this is my time of the month. Ladies. You know, so uh, so I can't relate. I don't have that problem. But I don't see why your problem should become everyone else's problem. We had a woman drown five kids because it was her time of the month. Right? This is insanity. But this is the way our generation has become. It's making an excuse 
for my action. Don't accept responsibility for my action. But the Bible says love is not irritable. Love is not touchy. Love is easily provoked. It knows how to turn the other cheek. It knows how to turn the other cheek. I can flow with someone else's faux pas and I can live with it. Let's move on. Literally, that means love takes no inventory of evil done to it. It's an accounting term. Very interesting. It's an accounting term. When someone does me wrong, I don't put it on the books. I don't keep inventory of all the things that have been done to me. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Okay, listen to 26 translations. It's very enlightening. Uh, love does not rejoice in iniquity, takes no pleasure in wrongdoing, does not gloat over other men's sins. Love is never glad when wrong is done, but rejoices at the victory of the truth, but is always glad when truth prevails. So what he's saying here is love has an intrinsic bent towards righteousness. It doesn't go towards iniquity, it goes towards righteousness. Not only in myself, but in others and in what happens to others. It sees the evil that comes from iniquity. And it sees its adverse effects on people's lives. See, sin, iniquity, always bears fruit. It bears fruit in my life when I do it. It bears fruit in your life when I do it. It bears fruit in your life when you do it. And it bears fruit in those around you. Then it comes back on you. And you end up eating it inevitably. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you're going to reap. It's going to come back. God isn't mocked by our sin. And so sin takes its toll. And love doesn't rejoice in any of that. It doesn't rejoice When it sins, because it recognizes that it has a ripple effect. It doesn't rejoice when you sin, because it sees the adverse effect it's having on you. See, people sin, they don't even know what it's doing to them. I was talking with Corey just a couple of days ago. We were talking about this issue of, uh, of hardening of the heart. You can't sin without sin doing something to you. We think, oh, you know, I'll just sin, I'll just trip off and do my sin, and it won't have any effect. It changes you. When you step into sin, it changes who you are. And so love looks at that. It looks at sin and it goes, man, you don't, you don't even know what you're doing to yourself. And then when that sin comes home and the roosters come home to roost, uh, sin, uh, our love does not rejoice in that. <laughs> yeah, I told you. Uh, you finally got what you deserve. You finally got caught. Love doesn't do that. Love takes no delight in the workings of sin at all. It looks at sin and says, you know what, that's a bad deal all the way around. And rather, it rejoices when the truth of Jesus Christ prevails in a life. Love is thrilled when people get saved. Love is thrilled when people make good decisions. Love is thrilled when people begin to set the righteousness of God up in their heart and say, this is the way I'm going to live. That's what love is about. Love is looking for that. It doesn't endorse sin. It doesn't put stumbling blocks in front of people so that they will sin. See, all in all, love is very down on sin. It doesn't have any place for it in its heart. 
Let's go on. Bears all things. Any injury, any disappointment, I can bear it. It, it won't make me give up on you. Next. Believes all things. Interesting. Is this a call to naivete? I don't think so. Nonetheless, it's able to look past a person's problems and say, you know what, I believe that God's able to do something in you. Furthermore, it fundamentally trusts. When you love, you fundamentally trust. See, we live in a generation that says, you know, you can't trust anybody. But love says, you know what, I don't want to live suspecting everybody all the time. I don't want to live questioning your motives. You said hello to me. I wonder what you meant by that. You probably want to borrow my car. So love is always suspicious of the motives and, and uh, the, the, the reality of the relationship. You know, I like to take people at their word, even if, even if I know that they have a somewhat specious track record. Even if I know, you know what? This guy's, uh, you know, he's been known to tell a few, spin a few yarns. I like to give him the benefit of the doubt. I prefer to do that. Because that's what love is about. It's about trusting people. It's about trusting God's ability to change people. It's incredible. When you think about the dynamic of this fellowship, you think about the guys that went out to pastor and the trust that Pastor Mitchell had to show... It's incredible that this fellowship even exists. You know, sending out a bunch of fried hippies and saying, go and win the world. This is nuts. It doesn't make sense. You can't trust a hippie. He's going to steal your stereo, sell it for drugs. And you're going to give him thousands of dollars and say, here, go build a church? A hippie, he doesn't even know what to do with thousands of dollars. And, and you're going to trust him with a church. You're going to trust him with people. It's stunning. It's amazing to think of the, the, the basic trust that Pastor Mitchell has shown us through the years. It's an act of love. Go on. Love hopes all things. We've already touched on that. In, uh, next one. We've already touched on that. And uh, just to point out, endure, the word there doesn't simply mean put up with. It means uh, to uh, endure with joy and with victory. It's a positive endurance. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it somehow. It's, it has victory. It has dominion. Okay, so this one portion of Scripture, this just this one little bit, defines the way we're supposed to relate to each other. How, how'd you do? How'd you do? How's your marriage look up against those verses? How's your relationship with your brethren look up against those verses? The way you treat each other. How'd, how'd you do? Did you pass? This is a pass-fail exam, you know. We're not grading on a scale. Hmm. It's a little tight in here. Let's open for questions, confessions, tears. We can have an altar call right now if you want. <laughs> Nick. Financially, 
This is reverse theft. This is what happens. This is what happens when people get saved. Hallelujah. We want to come so they'll break into our house. Wonderful! What a great testimony. So there we go. So uh, there's uh, someone standing up for your defense. It's very, very good, and I'm very pleased to hear it. To be honest with you, Casey. You mentioned Galatians chapter six. Uh huh. So many times we deal with that strictly in the context of sin or finances, but if you read the, you know, if you actually look at the context of dealing with relationships, that you know, if a man stumbles. Very good. The Bible says, what mercy you show, that mercy will be shown to you. It's another way of phrasing the exact same thing. And Casey points out that uh, whatsoever you sow, you'll reap is spoken in a relational context. And so, uh, you know, the Bible says, in order to have friends, you must show yourself friendly. So relationships are always a two-way street. And when you're looking for uh, the blessing of relationship, it comes if you invest in relationship. Okay, Pete. When I got saved, I kind of likened my personality to that of a fighting sea urchin. <laughs> <laughs> Which are lethal, aren't they? That's very good. Um, one of the things you have to understand many, many times, people that come to the church are outcasts. And many times they're outcasts for good reason. And yet this is what God brings us to work with. And it is the act of redemption. Paul spoke of filling up or completing what was lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. And obviously he wasn't talking about some deficiency in the sacrifice of atonement. What he was talking about is the ongoing work of redemption. 
that that has to work itself out. And the way it works itself out is in a redemptive church. It's in a church that is able to take people with their problems, their faults, their difficulties, and redeem them. That is the calling of the church. And that is the, the payoff of good relationships. Is God is able to move in redemption and secure souls for eternity. God help us when we stand before the throne that we do not hear the words Jesus said, when I was sick, you didn't visit me. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. And when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. All of the things that he says to those that he casts out, he says in terms of relationship, and he says, you didn't take note of me, is what it comes down to. And it's a very, very frightening thing to realize God is bringing people into the church to redeem them. He has no other tool of redemption but the church. And God help us that the church live up to that responsibility. Because if we don't, we're going to be held accountable for that. Victor. Yeah, very good. We're going to look a little deeper at that next week, but uh, we've got to be very, very careful about our attitudes towards backsliders. And uh, You know, God, God loves backsliders. He hates their backsliding. He hates their sin. But He hasn't changed His commitment to their salvation. And even though they harden their heart, you know, there will come a point where God will say, that's it, I'm not working with this anymore. But that's up to God. That's not up to us. And it's a fearful thing to understand many, many times uh, because of our lack of redemption, our lack of a willingness to reach out to a backslider that uh, God isn't able to touch them and able to reach them. We don't want to be guilty of that. And again, I, you know, I go back to Nick's point because I think Nick made a very, very good point. Uh, my, uh, my experience with this particular church, and I've pastored two or three, is that this is an incredibly redemptive church. And that by and large, people in this congregation have wonderful hearts towards one another. But, you know, there's always uh, the, the bad apple. There's always people who need to hear what we're saying right now. Because the stories do get back from time to time. Especially teenagers. Too bad they're not in here. I'll get them in a sermon somewhere along the line. Teenagers are the most brutal creatures on earth. You know, it's like somebody pulled their brain out and just left them with a large mouth. 
And they say things that are cruel and abusive, and then they smile. And you just want to thunk them. Rodney, last thought. Yep, it's a father's love towards an errant child. Praise God. Uh, I encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7 and uh, do that on a daily basis until it starts to sink in. Pick it up next week.